Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, and this is Bennett Kelly. I'm here with a special edition of um, Cyber Law and Business Report. Um, Please be seated. Um, I am doing this broadcast from Georgetown University Law Center, right by Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. We're right across the street from the Federal Trade Commission, which is conducting its workshop on advertising and privacy disclosures in a digital world as they consider updating the dot-com disclosure guidelines. Um, We have a great show for you today, and it's all going to be about disclosures. We're going to start off talking about the FTC workshop um, we have Steve Del Bianco, um, and he is with NetChoice. And then in the second half hour, we're going to talk about disclosures in the political blogosphere. And we have um, we have the director of the California Fair Political Practice Commission, and she's going to talk about the, her proposal um, to regulate that area. So we got an interesting show for you, some um, high-powered people, and we hope you'll join, enjoy it. Um, and without further ado, I am sitting here with Steve Del Bianco. He's the executive director of NetChoice. Um, has a, quite a distinguished background. He's involved in ICANN, and um, he's really been involved in the net and e-commerce for quite some time. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, thanks, Bennett. Great to be here. And so, Steve, why don't you tell me a little bit what is NetChoice? Yeah, NetChoice is a trade association of most of America's leading e-commerce platforms and online businesses, folks from PayPal and eBay to Facebook and uh, AOL, Living Social, for instance, VeriSign, Yahoo, 
Expedia, all the companies that rely upon the Internet to reach customers and in many cases build platforms or marketplaces that allow customers to reach each other. So we've been in business about 12 years, and we do, do as you say, at, uh, at the state level. We were just in Sacramento. Uh, we do at the federal level, testified in a, over a dozen federal hearings. And then, of course, at the international level, trying to do battle with the United Nations and the International Telecommunications Union to make sure that they keep their hands off of the Internet governance since we think the Internet's worked pretty well. You know, if I could sum it up in a, in a word, NetChoice's mission is to keep the Internet safe for capitalism. Well, that's an important mission. And, um, and you are here today because you're actually you were on the, the first panel of the workshop um, that led off on today talking about the, the dot-com disclosure guidelines. Right. The purpose of today is to take a look at reviewing what was done in 2000, the dot-com disclosure, the, the infamous Purple Book, which is about 22 pages of best practices for how to do disclosures and disclaimers, followed by over 60 pages of website examples. And uh, the FTC staff is considering whether they ought to do any updates, either to the principles or to the examples. Well, because a lot has changed in the last 12 years in the way people communicate and use the Internet. So today's kickoff panel was uh, universal and cross-platform considerations for how to do that. And uh, since then, there's been another panel on uh, social media. There will be another on mobile this afternoon. And then finally, they'll cap the day off with what I think is the lead act, which is the FTC's discussion of how many more disclosures do we need to do before people download an app. And the disclosures they're interested in are privacy-related disclosures. So that'll be a good one as well. And that's why the title does say, you know, advertising and privacy. And I wonder if that's the bigger concern because there has been a lot of focus on apps. For example, the California Attorney General just had the agreement with the major app makers to, you know, to establish a certain privacy framework. It's not even just a framework benefit. It ties into this disclosure because the case that California AG as well as the FTC has brought is that when a user visited the App Store and mm -hmm. different platforms, whether it was Google or Apple or others, uh, the apps that were listed there would self-describe what the capabilities of their apps were. But not all of them were diligent at describing the nature of their privacy policies in the store. On the other hand, after you downloaded and installed the app, you had access to their privacy policy. But what the FTC and Attorney General Kamala want was descriptions of privacy practices before I hit the download button. So what's at issue is not so much how I do my privacy practices, mm -hmm. but at what point in the purchase download cycle do I disclose enough to make sure consumers are informed. Now stepping back, you know, the dot-com guidelines, you know, they've, they were launched in 2000. They're very successful. You know, they actually provide concrete examples, as you mentioned, and I often, when I've had FTC guests on, I always tease them because all the examples are referred to some FTC diamond mine. And I always ask if they have profit sharing. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm told that the, in the update, it won't be diamonds, it'll be some other product, and I guess I tease them too much. But, um, you know, it's something that worked. And so the, the reason to revisit it is mainly because of changes in technology. Because we are now dealing with, one, these uh, Twitter-type environments where you have truncated um, systems of disclosure. Um, we have social media where you have a mix of advertising and, you know, kind of social communication. And, and then now, you know, with the apps, you know, what, what, should, what should the appropriate um, context be? 
And so do you see that, that as being the primary things driving this? Or I, I think you have it exactly right. This peer-to-peer or social context of dis- whether disclosures are necessary for, for me to express my affinity, express my, uh, my appreciation for a certain product. Uh, how much do I need to disclose if I did so in response to a $1 off coupon offer mm-hmm. or a free cup of coffee before I bragged about the coffee and pastries at the store? And I think you've got it right. And the small form factor format is definitely new. The 2000 guidelines were really focused on websites where a distributor or manufacturer would describe the attributes of their product and uh, give you an opportunity to purchase. And there was a whole discussion of how much they had to disclose about health and safety risks. Did they have to disclose that there were add-on costs after you bought it? And uh, that all focused on the conventional large format website. And uh, things have changed. As you said, with a mobile device, I'm looking at a, a fraction of the real estate that's available. I almost always have to scroll. And one funny example is the notion of mouse overs, right? On a mm-hmm. conventional computer, you might mouse over a given word, and you might have a tip box pop up or a small disclaimer box come up. But on your uh, iPad or any other smartphone, your finger is going over the screen. So I don't know about you, but my fingers are fat enough that I can't see the pop-ups as I'm scrolling <laughs> over the words anymore, well, especially while you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that's, but there's also an, another interesting context that I, I saw happening today, and that is um, kind of an, an equation that all, all disclosures are equal and that you know, regardless of the context, that there seems to be some form of disclosure required and, um, and not necessarily evaluating materiality at all. Yeah, that's a great question, and our panel focused a lot on that because the FTC would prefer to just talk about how one discloses. Right. And they would prefer not today to discuss who must disclose and under what conditions, what materiality threshold. Well, you'll be glad to know that the first panel ignored those limitations on the conversation, and we dove deeply into the who has to disclose and the materiality standard. Because the guidelines that the FTC did 12 years ago had pretty common sense principles, uh, the placement principle, the proximity Mm -hmm. principle, and the prominence. And they go to those first 20 pages to discuss how you can achieve that. And in the examples, though, they almost always come up with examples where it's obvious that it's a very material item of disclosure. It's a health and safety issue, um, or it's a deceptive issue. It's an add-on negative option contract. So in those examples, the materiality is built into the example. The second thing they do is they almost always give examples of the advertiser, the actual distributor or manufacturer of the product. In no case do they show examples where I'm using a third-party platform, like a marketplace, like mm-hmm. eBay or Craigslist. And the example I gave this morning was the WashingtonPost.com classifieds, where people go to sell things without any appreciation of the fact that they may need to include a health and safety disclosure before they sell an item that has health and safety risks. We also um, touched upon the idea that peer-to-peer sharing back and forth is uh, where I might uh, endorse a product or indicate something about why I like a product, and I'll not know that I have an obligation to disclose something about the incentive that I received, or I'll not know that I may have to disclose something about health and safety risks. It's, it's, it's definitely a new world, and they're trying to get their arms around it. Where, where do you see this going? Yeah, great question. And I said this this morning uh, and uh, in the written comments. I really believe that the FTC had a good bit of law 70 years ago under Section 5 of the FTC Act to prevent unfair and deceptive trade practices no matter where and how they occur. 
And true to form, the FTC will issue occasional guidance on particular areas of the economy where they may have to clarify what they mean by unfair and deceptive. As you said, that's exactly what the dot-com disclosure was 12 years ago, to look at the online advertising and marketing space and how they needed to clarify. Um, I don't really think they need to change anything in the first 20 pages of the dot-com disclosures. The principles in there on placement, proximity, and prominence still make sense, whether you're talking about Twitter, Facebook, eBay, or a manufacturer's own website. They all still apply. But, but I do think that they should change the way they've constructed these mock ads in the appendix. The ads previously focused only on full-screen format right. for the manufacturer. They need to cover all of these other platforms that we've been talking about. But an equally important and missing element is the FTC's enforcement record. Because it's one thing to read what the FTC says are the best practices, but you get a very different picture if you observe what they've done to enforce those principles with cases, actual cases, investigations, and settlements over the past 10 to 12 years. So I encourage them today, citing several examples of the Hyundai Motors, Reverb, Legacy Learnings, the Ann Taylor Loft cases, where the FTC went after an online disclosure disclaimer problem. And true enough, they held the accountable party to be the actual advertiser or sponsor. It isn't the platform that the blogger used. It's the fact that the blogger didn't disclose and the FTC may actually dig into it to see whether the product manufacturer or sponsor reminded the blogger that they needed to put a disclosure up before they made these claims about products they'd received some incentives to, show, to talk about. And you mentioned Ann Taylor, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Ann Taylor was a case, one of the, the first case really under the uh, new blogger endorsement guidelines where Ann Taylor um, had an opening of its spring line, I believe it was, and um, they invited certain key bloggers with uh, instructions in the invitation that if um, you know, they had to, if they wrote about it, they had to disclose that they got a goodie bag. Um, at the event, there were signs that said, "If you write about it, you have to disclose in the goodie bag." And there may even been some verbal statements made that if you write about it, you have to disclose you got a goodie bag. And, and sure enough, um, some bloggers wrote about it and did not disclose that they got a goodie bag. And, um, and Ann Taylor had to cut them off. And they cut them off, but they, they were still investigated by the FTC. And um, so it's, you know, how, what, what do you do? Do you just not, not invite bloggers? Or I mean, I'm sure it was kind of a, a, a curious situation for Ann Taylor. What, what did they learn from that situation, you think? You know, it, I, I'm not as interested in what Ann Taylor learned as I am what the rest of us can learn. So I want the FTC to summarize the case just like you did now. And summarize that case, and that is every bit as important as the 62 pages of mock-up pages that they have in the guidelines today. And I'm not asking to do a lot of new work. They've already prosecuted the cases. Mm -hmm. But if they document the way in which they attach responsibility, the way in which they measure the materiality and the efforts of an advertiser to inform the social media space, that's going to really be a guideline for all of us who already know how to design a web page where the disclosures stick close to the claims. We know how to do that. We know how to handle... Um, disclosures that are prominent and placed well. But the question is, who must disclose and under what circumstances? And I think we'll learn more from their case law than we will from their examples. In essence, you want to know, why did you pick Ann Taylor? Yeah, precisely. And, and remember, there's three or four other cases, and one of them was Reverb, which was in November 2010, where the FTC settled with a marketing company that had paid its employees to give fake positive reviews on the App Store, right? And those positive reviews 
will show up in the number of stars next to the rating, how many positive reviews. Exactly. And uh, some people may scroll down to actually read the reviews where they might expect to see some disclosure. But the point is that the stars are earned even if the viewer never even reads the comments. So they actually uh, came down hard. They didn't result in any financial penalties, but a consent decree because the marketing company was paid a percentage of the sales of the apps. So they needed to change it. So all their reviews made that disclosure. Although Reverb was pretty adamant about that they didn't do anything wrong. No penalty. Yeah, you know, there was no penalty, and they uh, they denied that they engaged in any wrongdoing, which is you know consistent in most consent decrees. You deny wrongdoing, mm-hmm. and there's no there's no agreement on that. So there's no um, civil liability to third, you know shareholders or anything like that. That's right, Ben. And, and you're a lawyer, so you're focusing on the outcome of that case for that defendant. But I'm a business guy. And as Samuel Johnson once said, nothing focuses the mind like the thought of being investigated by the FTC in the morning, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, hanging and, FTC, and, yeah. yeah that so when a, when a business reads about what happened to Reverb, they know that that damaged the company's reputation, that cost a lot of money in legal fees and distraction of management at a critical time in that company's evolution. So I think that the lessons learned from actual cases, even those that didn't result in heavy fines or liability, show how the FTC is going to assess who's responsible and when they have to act. Well, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be with Steve Del Bianco talking to him um, live from Georgetown University Law Center. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. How far do your ads reach? You don't have to fly around the world for the right consumers and clients to find your business. What you need is profit through performance. Location 3 Media helps you to increase your brand's findability and performance. Let Location 3 Media help you create efficient and effective online marketing campaigns that fit your needs and get you results. We know every click starts a journey. Where will your brand be on the path? Visit Location3Media.com. You have arrived at the destination for education and entertainment. WebmasterRadio.fm Because not everyone's last name is Gates. WebmasterRadio.fm We're everywhere. 
The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back here in a special edition live from Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C., across the street from the FTC's workshop on advertising and privacy disclosures. And we're back here with Steve Del Bianco. Now, we were talking earlier, and um, you were talking about whether or not you think the FTC may want to make changes um, to the dot-com disclosure guidelines. And I guess when, when, as you were saying it, I was wondering to what extent do you perceive them as maybe um, having a, a twitching finger on, on the trigger uh, wanting to make changes or whether they really just kind of want to graft on some modest um, things to update for technology? Yeah, that's a great question, but this is driven by the policy staff at the Federal Trade Commission, not necessarily the enforcement staff that we were discussing earlier. And the policy staff, uh, it's in their nature to want to hold workshops, discuss uh, practical as well as theoretical implications of how changes in technology may require new clarifications in the law. So I think it's in their nature, Bennett, and I'm pretty sure that over the next several months or, or the next two years, They'll update those 60 pages of examples to include lots of different platforms and technologies, search ads, search results that are all text, tweets that are text, things like Pinterest, um, likes, posts and comments in social media, as well as blogs, which they just discussed in the previous panel. So with all those examples in there, I hope they'll become a little more economical about how they present their examples. And we hope that they'll lead by example by showing cases where it's clear who's responsible and what kind of material conditions require somebody to do with disclosure or a disclaimer. And I think it's another aspect is um, getting back to the focus on materiality. And uh, you know, that, it, the panel on blogs, you know, there was kind of, it was assumed that this information is material and that you know, I would think that if I'm, go, if I'm making a purchasing decision based on something a blogger has said, it is because that blogger has impressed me over not just in one article, but over some period of time through her recommendations in the past. And so I now have certain confidence in her based on that. And um, I mean, granted, if, if that person you know, kind of you know, pisses away with some reckless endorsement you know, recommendation, then sure, I've been fooled, and so she should disclose. But I think um, to assume that consumers are that easily led by the whim of a blogger, just it seems odd. It does, and uh, we've crossed from the realm where advertisers who have all the information are have a little asymmetry with the consumer, with the advertisers disclosing just barely enough to avoid uh, running afoul of the law. And now we're in a realm where consumers are talking to each other. Right. And uh, there was a statistic disclosed earlier in the panel where uh, Internet users today have more confidence in reading peer reviews than they do in the claims made by the manufacturer or the advertiser. That's probably no surprise. That's how we interact in real life. So I think that uh, I think you're absolutely right, and we're going to encourage them to articulate what standard of materiality, when, does, when can we assume that people have been interacting socially for millennia, and they know that sometimes their friends give them incomplete advice, sometimes they give them bad advice, and our ability to discern that is partly based on our prior experience with that person, partly based on the facial value of the claims they're making, and we may well rely on the peer reviews of others to know whether that blogger or that post person 
is reliable. And, uh, you know, the FTC may want to make things foolproof, but it's impossible to make anything foolproof because fools are so ingenious. And they're born every minute. And it's interesting, I just have this visual image of the, you know, the kind of proverbial um, discussion over the fence of the neighbors. And I'm picturing, you know, well, you know, as you do realize, Jim, that my wife's stepsister works for, you know, um, Dell Computers and, you know, and, and this whole list of disclosures where, you know, the, it's really the character of the person that they're basing it on. Now, one thing I, I would be amiss if I did not touch on, since I have uh, the executive director of NetChoice here, is that they do a, a great service. Um, they publish what is called the Internet Advocates Watch List for Ugly Laws. And um, it's I... Um, the I awful. I awful. And um, it's funny because where I come from, there's a, a milkshake called Awful Awful, but it has a real thick New England accent to go with it. But um, tell us about I Awful. I, I really get a kick out of it. Hey, thanks, Ben. And I was inspired by this growing up on the East Coast where we had a Mr. Yuck symbol. It's a green symbol of a frowning face. And uh, my parents would put it on bottles of uh, cleaning fluid or other hazardous materials that I'm sh- not supposed to eat. And it was pretty effective. So we said, how can we come up with another iconic symbol like Mr. Yuck and attach it to the, the kind of legislation and regulation we see mostly in the states but also the federal government? Because uh, it's, it's a full-time job, chasing down over the 3,500 bills in most state legislatures every year times 50, plus all the mischief that they try to work here in Congress. So the IOFL was uh, an attempt to, a clever attempt to have an acronym, the IOFL, and as you said, the Internet Advocates Watch List for Ugly Laws. We publish it twice a year, spring and the fall, done it for four years now, and in that I-Awful, we list the ten worst Internet laws in America. And if you haven't looked at it, what's the website to find it? Yeah, it's www.iawful.com. I really get a kick out of it. It's a great, it's a great resource. And Utah has taken quite a bit of ink space on that list, if I recall. Utah has, but I believe California has earned the number one spot. Oh, they have. With the the bills and laws that they come up with. And California really does lead the way on so many aspects of Internet legislation and Internet regulation. And uh, those of us in the industry work very hard to keep the states consistent with each other, whether it's uh, privacy issues, data security breach, negative options, disclosures like this, because the Internet really doesn't know borders state borders the way that the old economy did. When you do business in the United States on the Internet, you're simultaneously reaching customers governed by all 50 state laws. So a patchwork of state laws is very dangerous and expensive for e-commerce. And we, we, fortunately, sometimes California is the trendsetter in other states. You know, it, it works and other states follow that trend. So you don't have the patchwork problem so much. But sometimes, yeah, it doesn't work out that way. Right. And that's when you need federal legislation. It, sometimes. Uh, federal legislation comes at a price, Bennett. You, know, you don't run up to Capitol Hill and ask for a preemptive federal bill that stops all of these state approaches unless you're willing to pay the price because you never know what else is going to get in that bill. So industry works very hard to keep the states consistent so that they have the same kind of a law so that you don't have to run to Capitol Hill and beg for some preemptive federal approach. So now that you're, you're done with the FTC today, um, what is your next big fight? You know, the, uh, the Internet relies upon the domain name system for how we access things, everything to the left and the right of the dot. And today marks the closure of a seven-year process by which the Internet will acquire 
thousands of new top-level domains. Top-level domain is the stuff to the right of the dot. Today we have 20 generic ones like .com, .net, mm-hmm. .biz, .org, .edu, and we have about 270 country codes. Those are the two characters, .uk, .ca, and uh, .de. But starting tonight, uh, the application window closes, and applicants from around the world have submitted as many as 2,000 applications for brand-new top-level domains. So over the next several months, we'll work through the competitive problems on that. For instance, if two people have bid on .radio, then their bids have to be evaluated, and they may have to go to auction if they can't come to terms. They may have to decide how they're going to run .radio. And I believe .vegas is one of them? .vegas will probably be in there. We won't know until tonight when they'll close the window, and then over the next several days they'll publish the list of all these applications for these new strings. So it's truly the wild, wild west here. Anything goes. Um, one of the chief issues is will, uh, will dot radio, for instance, run afoul of regulators, or will, they, or will they adhere to what the licensing rules are for radio stations? Will they allow a radio station that's not licensed to have and a domain radio. name and dot radio? That's an interesting question. It might be hit home with you, too. And uh, those, those conditions or restrictions on their top-level domain have to be included in their application so that the global community can evaluate those restrictions and see if they're appropriate, file objections, and governments as well will file objections as to whether something runs afoul of regulatory concerns or offends their moral or cultural sensitivities. A dot gay, for instance, or, 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 or dot xxx. Exactly. Did earlier. Now, if I can just qualify what you said somewhat, it's, I don't know if it's the wild, wild west. I think it's the wealthy wild west. Because what are the fees to um, get a new top level domain? Well, it'll cost uh, 185,000 in fees when you apply for this because that's ICANN. That's the that's the ICANN fee, and that's the their estimate of cost recovery for what they have to spend on arbitrators and evaluators and staff time to process the applications, the objections, and the auctions of moving that string dot radio all the way through to launching it in the root so that we can resolve it sometime like a year from today. That's a cost recovery fee, and I. I guess I, uh, I guess I feel like that's about what it's going to cost, given the amount of lawyers involved and technicians and management folks who are involved in moving these things through the application pipeline. In the short term, though, ICANN is pretty damn flush with cash, it, it would seem. True, true enough, but they're a nonprofit corporation. Uh, they pay very healthy wages, and they're located right there in Southern California. In Maria del Rey, yeah. Maria del Rey. But, uh, but again, their books are open like any nonprofit. Their books are open to public scrutiny. They're just hiring a new CEO, and they're trying to pay market rates based on what headhunters tell them the salaries need to be. It's not a place that uh, is opulent beyond all reasonableness, and, uh, and I believe they're going to spend the money they take in. If they don't, uh, they'll find a way to refund it through reduced fees in the next round. Now, if, if people want to get a hold of you, um, the best way to do it would be? Yeah, it would be great. Uh, we're at NetChoice, so I'm S. Del Bianco at netchoice.org. Or you can write to info at netchoice.org, and I'll be sure and pick it up. Well, I really appreciate you coming here. I walk across the street to Georgetown Law Center. It's been a pleasure, and um, definitely um, we want to talk to you more about these domain names. It's going to be a very fascinating issue, and uh, interesting to see how it works out. Tune in again in two months. I'd love to talk more about it. Great. Appreciate the show. Thank you very much. And um, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll have um, the director, excuse me, the, uh, the chairwoman of the California Fair Political Practices Commission, and we're going to talk about disclosures in the political setting after these messages. 
Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Rise links and web indexes. Take a bow to the largest link map in the world. Majestic SEO. Majestic SEO wields its virtual sword with speed and accuracy to deliver detailed reports of your company's link data and that of your competition. Let Majestic SEO make you your own king of internet marketers and join the crusade of clients and agencies that have chosen the noble choice for link intelligence. MajesticSEO.com Maximize ROI to use your time and let Majestic wield its mighty sword. MajesticSEO.com It's good to be king. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Just getting your feet wet on the internet? Then dive into our stream. WebmasterRadio.fm We're the coolest place around. WebmasterRadio.fm We're everywhere. Spanning the globe to give you the Get the latest news. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly, and um, we're here for our second half hour of the uh, Cyber Law and Business Report, and uh, we're doing this live from Georgetown University Law Center, right across the street um, from the um, Federal Trade Commission's um, Convention Center. And um, it's been quite an interesting day. Um, also speaking at the uh, Federal Trade Commission's hearing today um, are um, some alumni of our show. Um, Mary Engel from the FTC, um, she'll be doing the closing presentation. And um, in addition, Trevor Hughes, um, He's been on our show. He he was here. I don't know if he's speaking or not. Um, but Lori Faith Craner, who was on our show um, not too long ago, talking about um, do not track and um, some of the technical problems with it. Um, she's on the um, mobile privacy disclosure um, panel at the end of the day. So um, it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting afternoon for sure. Now um, 
Let me tell you a little bit about our next guest. And, um, you know, she has quite a distinguished career. She's um, worked at the Justice Department in the, under Clinton, and um, where um, she was um, head of one of the civil division units in the Justice Department. Um, she has worked with the California Bar and has now, um, under Governor Brown, become head of the um, Fair Political Practices Commission. And um, her name is Anne Ravel, and um, she's got quite a lot of press um, when um, she suggested that bloggers um, may need to um, make some disclosures um, if they've had political contributions um, or if they've been um, received compensation from some of the candidates they've been talking about. Um, Anne has been elected as Board of Governors of the, to the State Bar of California. She's a member of the Judicial Council of the State of California and, um, and is chair of the Commission on Judicial Nominees Evaluation. Um, so she's had quite a distinguished career in, in the public sector. Um, what exactly is that, and how does it differ from other states? The uh, California Fair Political Practices Commission was established by initiative of the voters, like everything else in California, after Watergate. And the, the purpose of it was to restore public faith and trust in government. Um, and ultimately, because of that, uh, faith and trust in government, people would be encouraged to participate in politics run for office, become more engaged in their communities. Um, the FPPC has a really broad uh, scope of responsibilities. We regulate campaign financing and spending, financial conflicts of interest, lobbyist registration and reporting, um, post-government employment, uh, mass mailings, gifts, etc. I think the way that this is somewhat different is that the commission itself is um, an independent, nonpartisan um, commission, independent of the governor and the legislature. Um, I, the, I'm chair, and I was appointed by the governor, Governor Brown, in um, 2011, and the four other commissioners are appointed by various constitutional officers of the state, uh, but there needs to be a balance of political parties. Now, um, you, you would differ from other states where the person with this type of responsibility would be maybe housed in the Secretary of State's office, for example? Exactly. And and I think that's the difference. In, in California, the Secretary of State is a partisan office. We are totally independent as a commission. Uh, we have a base level of funding. Um, we're also permitted to uh, fundraise to augment our funding. And, of course, we also uh, get augmentations uh, in the yearly budget. But uh, it definitely this commission operates independently, and in order to change our statute, uh, there has to be either a two-thirds vote of the legislature or a vote of the people. Now, um, you, your, your appearance today is very timely because 
Um, I'm, I'm calling to you from Washington. I'm right across the street from the Federal Trade Commission, which is right now having a conference on updating its disclosure guidelines for you know, e-commerce and mobile commerce. Right. And so you know, what are the appropriate disclosures that need to be made in a commercial setting, you know, particularly where there's conflicts of interest? And, and so you dipped your toe in this water um, in the political setting. Yes. And, um, I, and go, ahead. go ahead. No, and, and do you see a, a similarity between the two or, um, or just the, the kind of the basic harm to consumers that you were concern, concerned about? Whether it's a political consumer or a um, a um, financial consumer, right? Uh, it, it was actually the FTC disclosure uh, guidance that uh, was the impetus for my thinking about proposing such a thing in the political arena. Um, although I actually think, uh, while I'm concerned about consumer rights and and think of that uh, as part of the basis for this. I, I think that in the political arena, it is more important, actually, because rather than just uh, a financial impact, which is serious enough, and I think consumer rights are serious, but uh, the decision about how to vote uh, is often based on voting cues because people simply don't have the time to look into all of the issues, whether it be about a candidate or about a, a measure. And so they, they take cues and they, they pay attention to what others write. Uh, and since now, um, and I saw this there was a Pew Research Center study about uh, how most people are now getting their information about politics from and news from mobile devices, from Internet kinds of information, such as blogs. Uh, it seemed to me that this was an opportune time to start the discussion about this really important subject. And, and you make a good point because... I think you know a decision over what toothpaste to buy versus a decision over a United States senator who can you know confirm treaties and um, Supreme Court nominees. Uh, this seems to be a, a great disproportion uh, in terms of the weight of, of one decision versus the other. Exactly, and even on the local level, where um, since I've came out with this proposal, I not surprisingly have uh, gotten a lot of uh, feedback, negative and positive, and a lot of people have talked about uh, the, the purchasing of opinion on the local level and local campaigns. And it, it, local governments can have an enormous impact on people's everyday life. And I hope, and as we've seen um, here in California, in the town of Bell, where you know we had uh, kind of like a racketeering outfit that was running the town and getting million dollar salaries. So, um, how um, how prevalent do you think buying uh, influence is uh, in the blogosphere? It, it's hard for me to gauge, but. Uh, 
the the reason, aside from my emulation of the FTC, um, that that I thought about this issue was a, a fairly prominent blogger in um, California uh, asked the wrote to the F, FPPC and asked us whether we had any rules that uh, governed his activity in this arena because he indicated that he was being paid uh, by a party. And so uh, it it led me to think uh, that this is quite prevalent. And, and I have since heard from a number of people that it is definitely prevalent, um, whether it be direct payments or um, in the form of, and this came out during the gubernatorial campaign in California, that apparently Meg Whitman's campaign paid a blogger uh, for placing an ad on the blog, but paid um, an enormously inflated amount uh, for that advertisement uh, that that was so much more than what would have been uh, it, paid by anybody else in the normal course of commerce. So that that was one mechanism to receive positive uh, positive blogs about the campaign. So um, I had last week on our show, we had uh, Raven Brooks from Netroots Nation, which will be um, next week in Providence. And um, I mentioned that you were going to be on the show this week, and he wondered whether the objective of this type of, of approach was really to um, uh, regulate in terms of whether people are disclosing conflicts of interest, that somehow their their um, opinion is somehow bought, or whether it was really just trying to um, flesh out um, adequate disclosure of um, campaign spending. I, it's actually both. I think there needs to be adequate disclosure of campaign spending, and that's um, another initiative that I'm involved in relating to, in particular, independent expenditure spending. But I do think that some campaign spending is not um, adequately um, being disclosed in California and probably on, on the federal level as well, as we know. Probably. But I also think that it's very important for people to know, and that's part of what disclosure is about, the source of funding so that they can make a determination as to whether an endorsement is misleading, whether somebody has, um, as the FTC has said, a connection between the endorser and the campaign, which would make a difference in how people evaluate the endorsement. Right, and I mean, if I'm a, if I'm claiming I'm an ardent environmentalist and I'm being, my uh, blog is being funded by you know, um, pollute, um, <laughs> pollute dot com, then yeah, that that definitely educates people. Um, now, the proposal is not on the table at the moment, correct? That's that's correct, and. Uh, given some of the extreme <laughs> responses that I've received from bloggers, and I, I'm a great believer in, in getting all of the, the 
commentary um, on the table, getting input. Um, what we've decided to do in the interim, because it, it's probably not going to be something that that can be implemented quickly, is to have what we call interested persons meetings, um, to have people come forward, uh, talk about other potential ways of approaching this, at least in the interim, such as getting uh, the campaigns uh, to disclose the money that they're providing for opinion uh, in a much more um, granular way so that um, and and in a way that that we can put on our website so we can pull it out from their campaign disclosures more easily. Although there still is the issue of um, consumer consumption because, yeah. yes, it's on your website, but, you know, when I read, you know, blah, 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 blog, and even though on your website it says that, you know, his opinions are entirely funded by, you know, this, these companies, you know, on his blog, that's not disclosed, and so I'm not aware of that unless right. I go to your site, which um, I'm sure not too many people do. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there's two aspects to that. One, definitely we want to make our, our website the go-to place for political information in California. But, um, yes, I agree, it's not an ideal resolution. It's the ideal resolution is having it um, in the same place at the same time that the opinion is being provided. And, and given that we're talking about political speech, is it best to not regulate and then let you know the um, let the regulation occur through counter arguments, or is it better in some cases where it, it, it's just so egregious to have some kind of um, you know, prohibition or some kind of um, you know template that has to be disclosed in certain circumstances? Right. Um, you know, yes, we're talking about political speech, but clearly political speech um, can be regulated uh, in the sense of not the content of it, but uh, some of the source of it. Uh, so I think that... And format, the, yeah. Yes, and that's we require in California very clear, of course, this is of campaigns, but on advertisements, we require that they indicate not just the name of the committee, um, but the top funders of the advertising. Um, and that's political speech, and we do it for independent expenditures as well. Uh, so I think that, that there is some precedence for, for providing this kind of information. Um, but you're right. It's it's that is an issue that uh, has been raised by the bloggers, um, arguing that this is a First Amendment intrusion and that it is inappropriate to to require them to identify the basis for their speech because they should be able to speak freely. And make money. <laughs> and, and make money. Uh, and it's kind right. of parallel to the um, debate we're having over campaign finance, where you know should there be limits or should they just just have simultaneous disclosure? Mm -hmm. you know, if you know what they're getting, 
what's the harm if they're getting, you know, boatloads of money? Uh, as long as they disclose where it's coming from. Right. And I think mean, that's part of the debate that is happening in the post-Citizens United world. Yes. And and those are the kinds of, of debates that, that should be... Um, more um, more common, actually, because I, I, I think as chair of the Fair Political Practices Commission, I mean, I have noted that a number of the rules that we have um, don't serve the purpose that they were intended to serve. So it, it makes sense for us, rather than, than requiring campaigns or, or public officials uh, to go through a lot of um, effort in, in filling out forms, that we need to think about what kind of information the public needs to know in order to be able to make thoughtful decisions in both about <clears throat> their public officials and the, in their communities as well as about candidates. So the, the proposal is off the table and you're having stakeholder meetings and discussions right. about what, what to do. Is it possible there might be some kind of just you know, suggested best practice um, for this election or there really isn't likely to be any guidance for this election? <clears throat> no, I'm, I would very much like to have a suggested best practice. In fact, when I made the proposal, that was uh, what I indicated initially, because I know um, that's that's how the FTC did it. I was going to say, that's also the it, FTC model, yes. <laughs> exactly. And so that was my proposal, was that it would be done as a suggestion. Um, and it, I indicated that I would like to, to see it happen as regulation. But in part, um, that's that's something that I think needs to be pursued, but I also think the conversation about this has to be uh, um, more more um, common because this is something that people knew about but was not disclosed to the public. Most people well, do not know. We're running out. I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, I want to thank you very much for joining us. It's been an honor to have you. And if people want to learn more about this issue, where should they go? Uh, well, they are um, able to go to the uh, FPPC website uh, where we have some information about our, our both this issue and other issues, and also we will have information about our proposals. And the FPPC website is fppc.ca.gov. Uh, well, um, Emmerville, thank you very much. Um, it's been a thrill, and uh, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Um, this you. is Bennett Kelly with Cyber Law and Business Report, a special edition here live from Georgetown University Law Center, um, saying have a good week, and we'll talk to you next week from Santa Monica, California. Have a good day.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.